Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are a great and mighty God. You are just and you are holy. You are kind and you are merciful. And we rejoice in the strength of your love. The strength of your love that far supersedes the strength of our sin. And we pray, Father, that we would continue to worship you well. Help us to worship you as we worship in song and as in giving, as in prayers. And now as we worship you in hearing from your word. Allow us minds and hearts that are soft to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Every now and again, it's important to remind ourselves of some of the true horrors in this life. Some of those situations that we don't want to talk about regularly, and especially not on a beautiful Sunday, summer afternoon in late July. These are some of the situations that might keep you up at night if you think about them too long. And today, we read one of those situations in Judges chapter 19. Judges 19 is one of, if not the worst passage in the Bible. And so I want to ask you to grab your Bible with me and open up to Judges 19. It's found on page 218. I would venture to guess that very few of you have ever heard a sermon on Judges 19 before. And you probably will never hear another one. And that's because Judges 19 really only makes sense when you understand the trajectory of the whole book of Judges. And if you are new here to Old North today, this is your first or second time, let me sort of fill in the gaps for you. If you've been here week in and week out, then you know where we're going with this. That God's people Israel in this period of the Old Testament have gone from a people who have been receiving his promises and therefore following him faithfully to a point where they have been progressively moving away from him further and further through these cycles of sin that we've been talking about. And these cycles of sin are actually have become a downward spiral of sin. And a people who once were very clearly recognizable as the people of God in their works and their ways and their attempts to follow him have now become a people that are unrecognizable as the people of God. They've reached the bottom of this spiral of sin and it becomes for them a horror story. It becomes for them what we might call hell on earth. And so let's read Judges chapter 19 together. This is what it says. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel and a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, and he took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now let me pause right at the beginning to say, remember, a Levite is a person from the tribe of Levi, which is the priestly tribe in Israel, and a concubine is a wife who is also a servant or a slave. And so this man from the priestly tribe of Israel, the ones that are supposed to be closest to following the Lord, has now taken for himself this slave wife. And it says in verse three or verse 2 that his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her, her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. 
And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. And so they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they rose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread. And after, after that, you may go. So the two of them sat and they ate and they drank together. The girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him until he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early and in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said to him, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. And so they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose to up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day is waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not stay the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, and let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside to the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. And so they passed on, and they went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and to spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in, and he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold... An old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going, and where are you come from? And he said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. From which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant, and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all of your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. And so he brought him into his house, and he gave the donkeys feed. And they washed their feet, and they ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. 
but the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, and let's be going. But there was no answer. And then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went, on, went to his way home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So why are passages like this in the Bible? Well, in one respect, you might tend to think that it's important to be reminded of the evils of human history so that we do not repeat them. That's why we study history. That's why we study the history of World War II. That's why we study the Holocaust. That's why we consider the terrible nature of the Vietnam War or the genocide in Rwanda. These types of evils are not just nationwide or reserved for war. These types of evils, the evils that are talked about here, are the evils that don't actually make the history books, that don't make the paper. They're in our neighborhoods, they're in our homes, they're in our schools. But even more than that, even more than a simple history lesson, to study these types of evils we see that this does not simply point us to evil people. And it does not simply point us to an evil event. They highlight a much greater problem that is common to all humanity. We see here in such a story, why is this one in the Bible? It's here to show us very plainly that under sin's power, possible horrors become probable reality. Under the power of sin, possible horrors, things that you can only think about in a horror show, actually become probable reality. Let's consider the story together. This is a story throughout the beginning of chapter 19 to the end that is filled with sharp contrasts. And these contrasts are there very specifically to highlight just how severe this evil really is. The first contrast we see is the contrast of the hospitality of the concubine's father versus the hospitality or lack thereof of the people of Gibeah. The father of the concubine the father-in-law of the Levite shows exceptional, even excessive hospitality to his son-in-law and servants and donkeys. It's customary in that time for people to spend three days when they would come to visit in another town in Israel. 
And this father-in-law extends and extends and extends. They're there for five days, and he's asking them to stay even longer, to feed them even longer, to enjoy their company even longer. His hospitality is exceptional. But on the way home, they come to the town of Gibeah, and they sit there in the middle of the square, and they wait. Why would they go to the middle of the square? Well, they're waiting for somebody to invite them in. It would be unthinkable in an Israelite town for a stranger to enter the town and not have an invitation to stay, even though they were a stranger. But these people in Gibeah have no hospitality to offer. And this is further exacerbated by the fact that the Levite refuses to stay at a closer town, the town of Jebus, the town that was run by the Jebusites, because they were foreigners. And if you go into the town of foreigners, non-Israelites, you don't know what is going to happen. You know, what kind of things they might do, what kind of things they might say. They might not exercise hospitality at all. Let's go to a place where Israelites are, because surely we will have hospitality among our kin. But the people of Gibeah, from the tribe of Benjamin, show no hospitality. They have experienced such social disintegration in their basic relationships with each other. And instead of showing hospitality, they're highlighted as rapists. There's a sharp contrast there. There's another sharp contrast that we see in this story between the posture of the Levite toward his concubine at the beginning of the story versus the posture of the Levite toward his concubine at the end of the story. You'll notice at the beginning of the story, the Levite has this wife who is unfaithful to him, and after four months, he arises and goes to speak kindly to her to bring her back. This is a man who wants to woo his wife to come back home. But at the end of the story, he forces her, grabs her, it says, and sends her out to the angry mob from Gibeah to be abused and ultimately murdered. And then he dismembers her body. There's a sharp contrast in this story between what happens during the daylight and what happens during the nighttime or the darkness. You'll notice that all of the activities that happen in the daylight are seemingly good, they're seemingly pure, They're seemingly righteous. And the activities that happen after dark show the degradation of humanity all the way into darkness. The cycle of sin in Israel is now complete. The people of Israel have now been brought all the way to the bottom. God is completely absent from this story, and it begins with everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. And when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, the results are not just neutral. (laughs) The results are horrific. Never in a million years would have the Israelites thought that they could end up to be these type of people. The story concludes with saying, never, never have the people of Israel seen such a terrible thing since they've come out of Egypt. The Israelites who followed Moses through the desert 
by the power of God. The Israelites who marched with Joshua around the city of Jericho and the walls fell down and they took hold of their inheritance. Never would these people of God think in a million years that they would end up acting like this. But when sin is left unchecked, it begins to control you. And it brings you to a place that you never thought that you would go. Under sin's power, possible horrors become probable reality. Let's make some observations about these horrors. We see the horrors of sin's power expressed in a couple of different ways. The first is in a distortion of sex. We'll focus on that night In Gibeah, the Levite and his servant and his wife come into the square. They wait for someone to exercise hospitality. Uh, Somebody who is not a Gibeonite comes and exercises hospitality. He's staying in the town for a short amount of time, and he welcomes them in. And that's where we see the beginning of the darkness and even the assault. It says in verse 22, look at with me. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. The first of the sins mentioned here is the sin of homosexuality or homosexual practice. Now I know that to talk about homosexual practice in any context today is automatically guaranteed to fill some listeners with great emotion. This is one of the hot-button cultural topics of our day, and we know that our culture has continued to embrace homosexual practice, and we also see in this issue and many others that our culture continually sets aside the biblical voice consistently. It is one of the many ways in which we understand that our own culture is in a cycle of sin. (laughs) And this is a long and nuanced issue, isn't it? This is a personal issue for some of us. Some of us might be here today and we might uh, wrestle with homosexual attraction ourselves. Others of us uh, might be here today and many of us have friends or relatives or neighbors that we know that practice homosexuality. And so we can't be trite And yet, in our limited time today, we need to be efficient. And so I think maybe the best way to address this issue today is very simply to give you sort of six framework statements about how Christians approach the issue of homosexual practice. First, we know that all humans are created in the image of God, and this is the core of our identity And it is the grounding of God's love for us. And I say that word identity very specifically and very carefully. To be made in one's image is an identity-forming thing. And furthermore, the issue of identity, of personhood, is so intertwined with issues of human sexuality in today's culture that we need to be very careful to say what is the primary way that we look at identity as Christians. We look at our identity being image bearers of God. Secondly, we know that God has a specific purpose and design 
and framework for sex and that this is consistent from start to finish throughout the Bible. Thirdly, we know that humans sin, all of us, in a variety of ways. And sometimes that we have desires for sin that we don't want, desires for sin that we don't understand. And other times we seek after sin because it's pleasurable to us. This includes sexual sin, of which homosexual practice is clearly listed in the Bible. Fourth, we know that our core identity, back to that issue of identity, is not found in our actions. Our core identity is not found in our good actions or our bad actions, in our righteous actions or our sinful actions. Our core identity is found in something greater. Fifth, we know that God forgives sin by those who seek forgiveness in Christ And therefore, the response of all Christians toward anybody who sins, whether that is a sexual sin or a a different type of sin, is one of compassion and grace and mercy. And while at the same time holding up God's standard and the wonderful, loving truth of the gospel. And therefore, number six, we do not condone sin of any kind that's in the Bible. Anything that the Bible says is sin, we do not say is not sin. But we do love people, and we care for people, and we have a warm disposition toward people that genuinely want to seek God. And that includes people who wrestle with the practice of homosexuality. And so if you're here today, and you yourself struggle with homosexual attraction, then hear me very clearly. We love you. We love you. We want to walk with you. We want to pursue God with you. And we know, biblically speaking, that there's a better way than homosexual practice to do that. In the late fall here at Old North, we'll be teaching a series on human sexuality. And I'm sure many of us have questions or we desire a greater biblical framework or we want to be able to engage in this very important issue carefully and lovingly and compassionately while maintaining a biblical fidelity. So if if that's you, then I'm sure that you might want to sign up for that class. Think carefully about it and and arrange your schedule accordingly. The second form of sexual sin that we see here in this text is found in abuse and rape. The men of Gibeah seek to engage in homosexual practice and possibly gang rape with the Levite man And he sends his concubine out to them instead, and they rape her, and they eventually kill her. And the assault is not graphically described, mercifully. (laughs) The pain of the incident is left to our imagination. But the horror is perhaps encapsulated in the description in verse 26 and verse 27. Look at it with me. After the evening, it says, after they let her go, and as the morning appeared, the woman came, and she fell down at the door of the man's house where the master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house 
with her hands on the threshold. The picture is one that describes the poor woman who was just trying to get home while grasping for her very life. You know, the issue of abuse is all too real within the human experience. And we'd be remiss if we didn't pause and talk about that for a moment. Because it is one of the most horrible sins that we can inflict upon each other. That's why it's listed here in Judges 19. Because it is that horrible. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence has a number of statistics on abuse that I'm sure many of us are not aware of. More than 10 million Americans are victim to physical violence annually. One in three women and one in four men is a victim of some form of physical violence by an intimate partner during their lifetime. Think about that. 33% of women, 25% of men are victims of some form of violence from a relationship with a boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, or spouse. 76% of intimate partner physical violence victims are female. 24% are male. Domestic violence accounts for 15% of all violent crimes in the United States. According to these statistics, as many as one in five women will be raped in her lifetime. 20%. And nearly one in two women and one in five men will experience sexual violence victimization other than rape during their lifetime. Intimate partner sexual assault is used to intimidate, to control, to demean victims. And 14% and 25% of women are sexually assaulted by intimate partners. 14% of men and 25% of women are sexually assaulted by intimate partners during their relationship. The statistics for abuse within Christian homes is shockingly poor as well. And so, men, if you're here today and you are physically or sexually abusing your wife, there is simply no excuse for that. Stop. Repent. Ask for forgiveness, because you are called to a relationship with that woman that is completely opposite of that type of behavior. You're called to love her, to sacrifice for her, to protect her, to cherish her in the recognition that God has made this woman your wife. Ladies, if you are here today and you are physically or emotionally abusive to your husband, there is simply no excuse. Stop. Repent. Seek forgiveness. And if you're here today and you are in a relationship where domestic violence or sexual abuse is happening, then by all means, please seek some help. Whether that is with us or another venue, do not live in that prison. There's no excuse for it. I think you can see now that these types of sins constitute some of the worst type of human behavior. 
That's why it's in Judges 19. And it's interesting to note that when you think about the trajectory of Israel and the types of sins that they've been committing and how now it gets worse and worse and worse and worse, and now we're at the bottom, that at the bottom is sexual sin. (laughs) And that should cause us great pause, particularly if we ourselves are dabbling in sexual sin, because this type of sin is presented as some of the most severe and what we, have in Genesis, what we have here in Judges 19 is really a repeat of another chapter in the Bible, Genesis 19. If you're familiar with biblical history, you know that in Genesis 18 and 19, there was a city or twin cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. And the account of Sodom is almost a mirror image of the account of Gibeah with regard to their practice and their wickedness. Gibeah is Sodom 2.0. The only difference is that there's no angels coming from God to rescue the victims this time. And God isn't the one that is going to miraculously destroy the city. The people themselves have degraded to a fact where they're going to actually do that themselves in the subsequent chapters. But Sodom was so wicked that God saw fit to rain down hellfire and brimstone to completely obliterate it and all of its inhabitants. And Gibeah has now found a way to that level of wickedness. You know, another horror of sin that we see in this passage is in self-serving interest. Whether it's the self-serving interest of the concubine at the beginning of the story as she has an affair on her husband, or whether it's the self-serving interest of the men of Gibeah who ultimately raped and killed that concubine, or whether it's the self-serving interest of the Levite man as he sends her out to be killed. When everyone does what is right in its own eyes, self-serving interest will rule the day. And self-serving interest at the end does not have boundaries. <laughs> it will keep devolving and devolving and devolving to the very bottom. And so you see the account of verse 28 that's chilling in its effect of self-interest. The man opens the door He sees his wife lying on the doorstep after a horrible night, and he said to her, verse 28, get up and let's get going. But there's no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and he rose up, and he went away to his home. Who acts like that? Under sin's power, possible horrors become probable realities. Possible horrors become probable reality. And so having abandoned God's law, which was meant to protect them, we see what happens when sin reigns. And it points us to an important truth about humankind, that the reason why this story is in the Bible, and that is the truth of total depravity. When you begin to understand your life in terms of spiritual terms and how that relates to your actions, total depravity is one of the things that you have to come to. To say that humans are totally depraved is to say that every ounce of our being is affected by the sin nature that we were born into. There's no portion of me, no pocket of my being that is left unaffected or left pure. 
Sin has touched it all, my heart, my mind, my will, my desires, all of them have been infected by this incredibly powerful sin nature that I have. And this is a message that's expressed throughout the Bible consistently and in a variety of different ways. And it talks about actions and heart and mind and will. Let me read a number of them for you. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7 that from within, out of the heart of a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 2 Timothy in the New Testament, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 25, that, that this is related to being captured by the devil. It says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil who's captured after being captured by him to do his will. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out desires of the body and mind, and were by nature, we might even say we're by sin nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. And so you see, the picture is that our hearts, our minds, our desires, our actions, all of them are affected profoundly by sin, by sin that we even take so casually. And our problem is not just that we commit sins, but our problem is that we have sin. <laughs> Whether those are sins that seem minor in the big scheme of things, you steal a pack of gum when you're a kid from the local convenience store, or sins of the worst type that we see in this passage, those, that's not our ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is that every ounce of my being has been touched, affected, infected by sin. And when sin is allowed to rule, it takes us to a place that we never thought that we would end up. Some of you have heard of and read maybe the books of author Rosaria Butterfield. And she lived part of her life as an atheist. She was an ardent feminist. She was a practicing lesbian. And then she came to know Jesus as her savior and she became a Christian. And she says that being born with a sin nature is a little bit like inheriting a garden. She puts it this way. She says, let's just say you inherited an enchanting garden, and after 10 years, you just, or, and for 10 years, you just decide to let it thrive. You let the garden do anything that it wants to do in this attempt to let it thrive. You never prune back the weeds. You never rid the pests. You never work on the roses. You just, quote, unquote, let it thrive. 
And after 10 years, what is it? Well, it's a disaster. And you might look at this garden, you say, this is even past the point of no return. I don't know if there's anything bringing this back. And so you go to a master gardener and you say, hey, this isn't fair. I want my money back. I mean, I did whatever I could to let this garden thrive of its own volition. I let it do exactly what it wanted to do. Now, you know what the master gardener is going to say to you? He's going to laugh and say, hey, buddy, gardens come with weeds. It's part of its nature. And by failing to deal with that, you've destroyed it. If sin is allowed to grow in your life, it is, if it is allowed to thrive, it will take you to a place that you never thought you'd end up. It will bring you to a place of being unfaithful to your spouse or to a place of deceitful behavior or overindulgence. If sin is left unchecked in your life and we submit to its power, it will bring you to self-serving conduct that knows no boundaries toward numbness of what is right and wrong, toward a casual sexual ethic. If, if sin is left to its own accord in you, it will change the way you speak, it will change the way you spend money, it will change the way you think, and it will even change your desires. And if not dealt with, sin can lead you all the way to the bottom, to abuse, to sexual deviancy, or even to sexual assault. Because under sin's power, possible horrors become probable reality. And I hope you're beginning to feel the weight of that because I've sat with countless people over the years that have all said the same thing to me. They say, Pastor, I have no idea how I got here. I never thought that I would be the one that got fired from my job for misconduct or that I would cheat on my spouse or that I would have an addiction. And all of those sins point to a bigger problem of sin. And under sin's power, possible horror becomes probable reality. And so now you see why one of the worst chapters in the Bible is here. It's here to point to our total depravity. And if we are totally depraved, then there's obviously nothing that we can do to pull ourselves out of this mess. We need a savior. And so we conclude this morning with the best news you can have. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 17, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Even Gibeah, even you. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There is a savior 
And because of our sin, we so desperately need him. Let's pray together. Father, woe to us if we hear the warnings of Judges 19 and we continue to take sin casually. Woe to us if we hear the warnings of Judges 19 and we think that we can earn a righteous standing before you or we think that we can independently navigate our way through life in a way that is good and right and pleasing to you. Father, we thank you that there's a savior because in our heart of hearts and in our deepest desires, we know where those things could lead us if it wasn't for him. And so we cling to Jesus. We proclaim that we need Jesus. We proclaim that we so desperately want the forgiveness that you offer, that your son gives freely and willingly, that he lived a perfect life, that he lived a sacrificial death, paying the penalty for these sins on our behalf, that we might be right with you. We cling to him. We surrender to him. And we follow him. Amen.